Friends, what follows is not for the faint of heart. We bring you tales of the paranormal, human wickedness, the curious, and the bizarre. Please, if you continue, proceed with caution and an open mind. We are the Queen City Creeps. Hello and welcome to Queen City Creeps, your new favorite podcast for all things true crime, paranormal, and just a little bit weird. Today it is me, Sarah, joined by Shelby. Hello. And Jennifer. Hello. And we're here to round out our Warren a thon that we've been on. Warren a thon? Warren a thon? Sure. Our special class in Warrenology. Yes. Brought to you by the Occult Museum that you can tour for $169 a night and have your picture taken with four different artifacts. Probably won't, though. But we won't because. Why? Why would you do that? Okay, so my question to you guys is relating back to the grandmother of all warrantology-related stories, Amityville. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Shall we? I don't know if I am. Well, get ready. Okay, strap it in. (laughs) What is the dumbest slash craziest thing you've ever done after a bottle of wine or a night of drinking? We're going to go or on this one? Either or. Or both. Oh, shit. So, not a risk taker, like we all know. (laughs) I live a boring-ass life. And I don't do anything risky. So, pretty much the the craziest thing I've ever done after drinking was probably just, like, go into a trunk of a car um, (laughs) while I was drunk. And my friend's boyfriend at the time drove us to Taco Bell. While you were in the trunk? While I was in the trunk with my friend. Were there other people in the car? That's why you had to ride in the trunk? No. Oh. We just wanted to be in the trunk. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Also, we had talked about how you could put multiple dead bodies in that trunk because it was so big. And now Jennifer is part of a true crime podcast. Yeah. After nearly getting kidnapped in the back of what I'm going to assume was a Chevy Corsica? (laughs) No. Oh, okay. Mine was. I think it was like a Honda Accord or something, (laughs) probably. Something similar to that. Okay. That's about it, though. Generic teenage guy car. Got it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so, as usual, mine is relating to a dude. Sounds about right. And there have been plenty of decisions that have been made after a night of drinking that were not great. But, like, the one that I think at the time, I was like, what the fuck did I do? Slash everyone in my family was like, what the fuck did you do? Is that I had been dating a boy on and off since I was roughly 19 years old. And, I mean, it had been tumultuous. In the end... (laughs) Tumultuous. That was a weird hyphenated word. Tumultuous. In the end, I had actually moved away and said, I don't ever want to talk to you again. Like, please lose my number. Isn't that Tyler? Funny story, he didn't. (laughs) Neat. And... After a night of hanging out with my friend, after I moved back to Springfield, my friend being Tyler, yeah, we decided not only should we get back together, but he should come with me to my parents' 4th of July party to declare his intentions and try and make them not hate him. Because when someone has, you know, broken your daughter's heart a couple of times, you end up hating them. Well, yeah. But we thought this was a great idea. And also, oh, that we were going to move in together. <laughs> we also became Facebook official that night, just so we're all aware. 
It's Seems always, like a great decision. Always good to get that out of the way whenever you're still drunk enough not to totally yeah. regret the decision anyway. Where you yeah. wake up the next morning and you're like, I'm in a relationship with who? Wait, who is this person? Right. Ah, fuck. It uh, is complicated. It's so complicated. Um, but, you know, a number 10-ish years later, we were married with a kid. And we haven't broken up since we became Facebook official. So I feel like <laughs> it's totally fine. Maybe that mistake wasn't the worst mistake I've ever made, but... I feel like Facebook now asks you if you're sure that you're in a relationship with this person. <laughs> they probably added that step because of people like you. Hey, I hey. I had a lot of fake husbands on Facebook. That's fair. And wives. It, it also sends a notification to them to be like, hey, is this... Is this, is this kosher? Is this true? Is this real life? I don't feel like that's true. Because it, it's two in the morning and no one should be making this decision right now. <laughs> we for sure did, and I'm pretty sure we were in his friend's kitchen... Like, I was sitting on a counter, and he was standing there, and we're like, are we doing this thing? Let's do this thing. All right. One, <laughs> two, three. Same time. We always joke we were in, like, relationship chicken, and, mm. like, it was, are, are we in a relationship? Are we in a relationship? Oh, you want to get married? Do you want to get married? Oh, should we move in together? Should we have a kid? It's, we're just constantly, like, testing the waters to see which one of us is going to chicken out first. That seems like a really healthy way to do it. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> hey. Who is in a long-term married relationship in this room? You are. Yeah, suck it, nerds. You're welcome. <laughs> Only because you got together before the internet was really a big thing. <laughs> You're but also older than both of us, so you've had more time. Also I've had true. a lot of time. And if Tinder had been a thing, I don't. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Tyler would have just waited through women. Yeah. Like, I mean, he did already. It's whatever. Anyway, continue. <laughs> well, that took a dark turn. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the original uh, premise here, which is the dumbest thing I've done after a bottle of wine. And uh, I guess really to start the story, the dumbest thing I did after a bottle of wine at one point was another bottle of wine. (laughs) And then I thought, boy, howdy, I sure am lonely. And it's about hmm, 11-ish. I'm like, I can send a couple of messages, see what comes back. So I I shotgun spread my booty call, basically, uh, to three different people. Assuming one of them would be sober enough to head that way, and then all of them were. Oh, no. And so that wasn't as big of an issue with the first person that showed up. So I was just like, oh, cool, you made it, and started thinking, oh, I should send a text message back to the other two. Oh, no, Shelby. And I, <laughs> I was getting ready to type this message, and one of the other ones shows up. Oh, and this turns God. into a big white trashy cat fight in my yard. Which was fantastic, so I'm still just sitting there with an entire bottle of wine in my hand on my front porch going, Hey, ga- girl, just stop. <laughs> There's just enough don't. of me to go around. I was, I was kind of angling for that, but I w- didn't want to like bring it up. It didn't seem like a good time while they had chunks of each other's hair in their hands Probably or whatever. Not. So that got broken up, and I was like, I think it would be best if both of you went about your evening. And so they left. And then the other one showed up, and I just didn't mention it. well for you mm-hmm. i guess mine turned out well for me too technically. <laughs> right, why are you mad <laughs> i just was expecting like a better juicier story than a white trashy cat fight in my yard because i sent three different booty call messages and all three of them responded i wanted an orgy out of the deal were mm-hmm. all these or people at least like, a threesome were all these people like consistent booty calls or uh, not- semi-consistent I'm uh, I'm just sad that there has never been a time in my life that I had three dudes rearing to go in my phone that I could be like, scatter shot, and then get all of them to show up at my house. 
You want think, as much as a hoe, though. I also think the last thing you want is three horny guys showing up at the same time. <laughs> Valid. Do you not see any way that could possibly go badly? <laughs> After hearing my story about people who are usually not fucking psychopaths. Yeah, that's not good. I'm just saying... All of my, it just never works out for me. Like, all of my one-night stand-type situations ended up in, like, relationships. And it made me really sad. So it's all I ever wanted, but it never turned out. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. You're just wifey material. I mean, I evidently am wifing material. And I am super not, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after somebody hears this podcast, because then they're just like, oh, no. Shelby, I would wife you so hard. It's oh. fine. <laughs> you are my wife. You're my work wife. It's fine. That's fair. Yeah. Was it red wine or white wine? It was red wine. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you're a classy bitch. Listen, I only drink the white wine. White wine doesn't make you feel sexy. <laughs> white wine makes you feel like a frosty English English rose that just needs to like chill. Red think, wine makes you feel earthy and I don't think, hot right. for it. I don't think you understand how hard it is to make me feel sexy in the first place. <laughs> I I can feel like I want to have sex, but right. I'm not I'm not going to be looking at myself in the mirror holding a bottle of wine, going, you know what, dude? I'd fuck today. Me. You're doing all right. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Well, so all of these stories are to say that Amityville is a hot mess, I guess. So let's start at something that we know is actually true about Amityville. So whether or not the Lutz family haunting is actually true, the one thing that is true is that there was a really gruesome night the previous year in Amityville that to this day is one of New York's most notorious crimes. Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise, and their five children had lived in the Dutch colonial home in Amityville since 1965, which, strangely, the year my mom was born. Boom. Interesting. I know. (laughs) Ronald Sr. was a very successful car salesman, and his family, to an outsider, seemed to live a very happy, comfortable life. However, there was a side of the DeFeo family that friends and family, like, just didn't know about. Ronald Sr. could be a very overbearing father, and he was a very, very strict authoritarian. Like, what he said goes. And he actually very frequently got into fights with his wife and children, and his oldest son, Ronald Jr., who went by Butch, was actually the primary target of his verbal and eventually physical abuse. So so are you saying he got into fights with all of them at the same time? So I feel like they could take him. Well, yeah. I mean, except he probably, like, started on his wife, and then his son Butch, like, stood up for her, and, like, you know, like it goes in family. We had started talking about Amityville a couple, two episodes ago? Would have been two episodes ago, yeah. And it really just made me, I mean, there's so much out there about it, and there are people that genuinely believe the house is haunted. The kids have spoken out, all except young Missy. So we touched on that, and I just I wanted to kind of talk about all of it because it is like it's a big it's a big haunted deal, you guys. Sure, I just want to mention that I used the wrong name whenever we were in this last time, just for the sake of correction. But we'll get that taken care of this time yep, around. We will. Perfect. Okay. So Ronald Jr. went by Butch, and he was the primary target of the abu- abuse. So his problems at home eventually spilled over into school, and he actually started using heroin and LSD. Um, He got kicked out of high school because he became violent with other students and teachers and started to work at his dad's car dealership, um, all the while kind of struggling with his own drug addiction and other issues. So, around 3 a.m. on November 13th, Butch DeFeo supposedly snapped. He was 23 years old at the time, and he took a rifle, he went room to room, and he shot his family members as they slept. 
His father was 44. His mother, Louise, was 42. His brothers, Mark, 12, and John, 9. And his two sisters, Dawn, who was 18, and Allison, 13. Shit. Yeah, he killed all of them. That's... Supposedly. Right. Well, I mean, he's been tried and convicted, so you could say yes. But, but people have different theories yes. on what happened. Yes, and yeah. he's come out a couple of different times to say different courses of events. Right. So, but again, we'll get to it. So, after the murders, he ran to a local Amityville bar that was close to the house, and he started yelling and screaming that his parents had been shot. The police showed up at the DeFeo house, and they discovered the six dead bodies. And the town was just completely in shock. Like, they were well-known members of the community. Like, the DeFeos had been active members of, like, their society. And for this to happen was just insane. So, Butch was taken into the police for questioning. And very quickly, the investigators noticed that there were inconsistencies to his story. They, they just didn't understand. So, within two days of finding the bodies... Butch would actually be on the hook for six second-degree murder charges. The police eventually came to believe that he would committed the crime because he wanted the insurance money, which was, at the time was $200,000. In today's money, it's closer to, like, $900,000. Hmm. I didn't... The internet told me that. I didn't the you know, figure that. that? Yeah, I didn't figure that out myself. I, mean, I figured I, you're bad at math. Yeah, I'm so. so bad at math. If I was 23 and still living home with my parents and had a $900,000 payout looking at looking at me, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Okay. Perhaps. Would you kill six people for it? That's Including insane. your younger siblings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think go ahead and decline to comment on that one. Okay. There's um, a reason I live alone. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Yeah. Do you have a life insurance policy on Roxo? Uh, no, he is mostly worthless. Perfect. <laughs> so DeFeo's attorney was named William Weber, and from the time of his arraignment, Weber insisted that DeFeo was insane. They blamed the death of Ronald DeFeo Sr. Um, oh, nope, that sentence is inaccurate. They blamed the <laughs> dead Ronald DeFeo Sr. for his son's dysfunction, saying that because he'd been such an abusive, terrible person, he was just, he was a broken human being. So what could he possibly do? By the time that the case came to trial in October of 1975, just months before the Lutzes would actually buy the Ocean Avenue home, DeFeo's lawyers had actually hired a psychiatrist who said their client had been in a state of paranormal psychosis as he moved through the house and shot each and every one of his relatives. So they were already working on this angle of, he's he's insane and there's something wrong with that house right but this is the only well i guess i guess there were separate incidents incidents where he had been violent at school and stuff exactly but that could be based on drug use too well yeah the guy's a dick it sounds like yeah he was also put through some shit so i mean i'm not gonna say it doesn't make sense but why would you even try to do this paranormal thing whenever you could very well just be like hey his dad kicked the shit out of him since the day he came out of the womb i mean well but yeah his dad did but did his mom did all of his siblings no like they're trying to blame Mm -hmm. it on something so were they saying it was temporary insanity like a snap and then he you know like he had like like a psychotic break basically a ghost-based psychotic ghost Ghost-based psychotic break. break. Yes, nailed it. So, a psychiatrist hired by the prosecution agreed that DeFeo was mentally ill, not paranormally ill, but insisted that he still knew what he did was wrong and therefore didn't fit the legal definition of insane. And the jury sided with the prosecution. DeFeo then received six concurrent life sentences for the deaths of his siblings. When a reporter asked at the trial if Weber thought the verdict against his client was fair, he did not reaffirm his client's innocent or make any type of statement that one 
expects from a criminal defense attorney. Instead, he said, I'm just glad I wasn't a member of that jury. But Weber still wanted to try and argue the case. He said that to reporters during the trial that he was charging DeFeo only a modest fee and that I'm getting more out of this from the publicity. Oh. So basically, I know he's going to fry, but everybody's going to know my name. Exactly. Hmm. So just two weeks after his sentencing late the following year, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved into the tragic home where allegedly a new round of horrors began. Oh, my da, God. Da, da. You ready for this? Yes. Okay. I'll handle the so, music around here. Thank sorry. you. Sorry. <laughs> um, the Lutzes, it was a six-bedroom Dutch colonial, as mentioned before, and it was to belong to the Lutzes for only 28 total days. Um, I'm not going to touch on, honestly, like, everything that happened in this house because everybody knows. Like, we've seen the movie. We kind of have a rough idea. So a quick rundown of everything that happened. The Lutzes claim that were driven out of the home by sinister forces that ripped open a heavy door, leaving it hanging just from one hinge. They, the ghosts supposedly threw open windows regularly. They bent the locks open. They caused green slime to ooze down from the ceiling. And would peer into the night with bright red eyes. They'd also leave cloven-hooved tracks in the snow outside. They infested a room in midwinter with hundreds of houseflies, like you saw in the movie. Right. um, And produced a myriad of other supposedly paranormal phenomena, including a priest with inexplicable painful blisters on his hand. Fun fact, there's no proof of this priest ever coming to this house. I saw the movie. He was in it. (laughs) Also, the nights... Everything that's in the The nights when they saw the... cloven footprints on the house outside or on the snow outside there was no snow on the ground oh okay. just like num- numerous things that come i was gonna out. ask they're only there for 28 days like did yeah. it snow in 28 days no it was like in the fall hmm. so it's iffy that's new york though, okay so. so you guys ready to hear about the warrens yeah oh my okay. god we're we actually gonna hear about the warrens on this one so 10 days after the lutzes fled the house Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in by Marvin Scott, a news reporter with Channel 5 New York, who'd covered the Amityville story and worked on a prior investigation with the Warrens. So they weren't even in the house. The Lutzes weren't even there. Hmm. Um, At that point, the Warrens brought in a team of reporters, investigators, and parapsychologists and met at the home on Ocean Avenue. The Lutz family refused to reenter at all during the investigation, so they were not around Ed and Lorraine at all. During the investigation, Ed was physically pushed to the floor while using some religious provocation in the basement. So he was, like, trying to Mm -hmm. oomph the demons out with some Jesus magic. I'm glad they pushed him. I know. (laughs) Lorraine was also overwhelmed by the sense of a demonic presence and was plagued by her psychic psychic impressions of the DeFeo family's bodies laid along the floor covered in white sheets and a sense of physically being pushed back. That's from the Warren website, just so we're all aware. They're laid along the floor. Yep. She imagined the family, or not imagined, she, her psychic impression was that the <laughs> Feo family laid along the floor in white sheets covering them. Oh. But they were murdered in their beds. Right. Probably uh-huh. removed directly from their beds and not placed on the floor. I think it's like a metaphor. I think imagination was probably the correct thing that you said. <laughs> imagination. Okay. So the research team also captured an image of a spirit appeared as the little boy peering down from the second floor. There, there is a reasonably famous picture of that one. Yes. So. Yes, that is one of the few pictures that, like, around the Warrens that actually exist that people have seen. Right. It's part of, like, their college tour thing that they can 
that they give to people. So, um, according to the Warrens' research, the land was also found to be used by John Ketchum. John Ketchum supposedly was a practicing black magician, not black musician, as it turns out. Founder of jazz. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) That had a cottage on the land prior to the construction of the Dutch colonial in 1924. John had requested his remains be buried on the property and that they remain there till this day, according to the Warrens. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, also, the Shinnecock. Oh, yes. Shinnecock. Oh. Indians also at one time had an enclosure on this land that was used to house the sick and the mad. And those in the enclosure were just left to die, according to the Warrens. Okay, I was going to say, is that, I don't feel like that's something that... I don't think I've ever heard that Native Americans did that. No, not never okay, once. cool. So. Uh, the Warrens <laughs> believe that the suffering there had left the property with a very negative energy and a dark history. That such negative history was a magnet for demonic spirits. Yes. Cool. So the Warrens believed that these energies directly impacted the lives of both the DeFeos and the Lutzes. The Warrens retrieved a handful of the Lutz's earthly possessions and deed for the property. The Lutzes sold the rest of their belongings and then relocated to California. So, like, they got some stuff out for the Lutzes, including the deed, and then the Lutzes were just done. They were out, moved to California. Hmm. All right, then. I'm wondering how much, how many of the Lutzes' earthly possessions ended up in the occult museum that you can tour for $169. Probably quite a few. <laughs> I think there were at least a few. I mean, but they were only there for 28 days, so it's not like they really had a chance to fill a house of that size. Yeah. I mean, when you move in, though, you have a decent amount of junk, right? Well, I think from from what I've read, I think they moved out of, like, a two-bedroom house or something. Oh, maybe. Like, they didn't... Mm. didn't, This house was tremendous compared to what they were currently living in. So I feel like their earthly possessions would fill about a third of that house. This is making me anxious to buy a house. I'm just saying. Because you have to buy a bunch of stuff now? I have to buy... Well, I need to buy stuff, and I have to buy maybe a haunted house. Oh, you need to buy is, a haunted house? I mean, or ca- not buy a haunted house? Is that capital H, capital H? Capital oh. H haunted, capital H house. Okay, so, the tale of the haunting gave Weber a chance to put the case back into the spotlight. It was, in fact, in Weber's office that the Lutz's February 1976 press conference took place. So they had this press conference talking about the house in this guy's office. But Weber did not present himself at that time as their attorney. Oh. Mm-hmm. Weber told reporters that that reporters that day that now, having heard the Lutz family's full story, the story that they were not entirely sharing that day with reporters, because why would you share the whole story with reporters, he thought that he could reopen the DeFeo case. And the implication was clear. The tale of paranormal phenomena in the house suggests that DeFeo had, in fact, been out of his mind. And he'd been driven out of it by the supernatural current in the place. No. So, so he's trying to appeal the case based on uh-huh. the, Lutz's te- or the Lutz's experience. Yep. Yep. So, of course, Weber said he could not tell them any more just now. He still had to discuss it with his incarcerated client. But he was looking into filing a motion. But it never appears to have been filed. Hmm. Would that he, be because he found a different way to make money? Maybe. Hmm. Maybe he just wanted some camera time. And I think as it stands right now, Ronald DeFeo Jr. is still an inmate in the correctional facility in Fallsburg, New York. Last I knew he was. Yep. So. There's that. Mm-hmm. So for 14 months after the Lutz family fled the house in Amityville, it stood completely empty. Then... A family named Cromarty 
moved into the house in the spring of 1977. Then, five months later, Jay Anson published the book he'd written with the Lutz's input, The Amityville Horror, A Devil of a True Story. The book, which that subtitle got changed eventually. That subtitle was stupid, so I'm yeah. glad they did that. <laughs> yeah. The book swiftly hit, hit the bestseller list and stayed there for over 42 weeks. By 1981, the book had gone through 37 printings and had sold over 6.5 million copies. I was say 42 weeks. That's uh, that's a hell of a... That's a lot longer yeah. than 28 days. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so the film rights sold to Hollywood, and Anson was attached to write the screenplay. But as the phenomena of this Amityville horror legend grew, there were some issues. Throughout the ownership of their house, which lasted over 10 years... Jim and Barbara Cromarty repeatedly told the press that they'd never seen anything unusual in the house. And also, please go away. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, which should be really good because, like, with all of the bad publicity about the house, they actually bought it for $55,000, whereas the Lutzes had bought it for $80,000. Which was still under market value. Hella under market so, value. So, yeah, it just yeah. kept getting cheaper, basically. Yeah. Instead of spirits, the Cromarty family was actually haunted by what could be called paranormal tourists, and they would knock on the doors at all hours of day and night. That's so obnoxious. So a lot of times people would show up calling themselves witches. Sometimes they cussed at the Cromarties and told them that they would die because they were living in the house. Like, mm. And the Cromarties had children. They weren't just like this older couple living there. People would show up drunk. I did um, not. Yeah, it was a little crazy. <laughs> it was so bad that eventually the Cromarties would sue the Lutzes, Anson, and the book publisher, Prentice Hall, for $1.1 million in assorted damages for fraud and trying to get them to admit that the subtitle, the then subtitle of Anson's book, A True Story, wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. Hmm. So they fought them in court, and the suit settled outside of court for an undisclosed six-figure amount in 1982. No, now who was paying that? That was the the um, writer, the Lutzes, and, and the book publisher. And the book publisher. Okay, so yeah, I, I was thinking all that money was coming from just the writer and the Lutzes. Right. No, it was the book publisher too. Probably. Okay. Let's be real. Right. I didn't figure they had that kind of money, but after selling that many books, who knows? Who knows? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, royalties, man. Okay, so at that point, the subtitle was a true story, but a lot of people think that even Jay Anson, the guy that wrote it didn't believe the story that he'd written he was quoted numerous times saying i'm a professional writer i don't believe and i don't disbelieve i'll just leave that to the writer the reader yep i'll leave that to the reader sorry i'll leave that to myself but jay you're the writer but you are the writer jay <laughs> i am neither the writer nor the reader <laughs> so yeah when he up and died at the age of 58 a couple of years after this he never got around to explaining why so much of his book like is completely fake like there were no police visits like we'll all talk about there were no catholic priests that were ever sent by the church that got weird blisters on their hands the snowy weather none of that was real and their facts back that up so are you telling me a movie that i watched was based on fiction pure <laughs> fiction well now i'm just mad I'm listen go throw that poster away you should be used to it after all the conversations we've had about the warrens that's true I'm not uh, surprised at all. Oh, yeah, I forgot all. the Warrens were involved. Yeah, yeah for yes. 10 days after the Lutzes left, they yeah. were here. No, I just I just forgot because we mentioned them for about 15 seconds uh, in the course yeah. of this fourth episode about the Warrens, so. So, you ready? William Weber, the lawyer, was quite prepared to say that this was all a lie, but 
he also wanted to take credit for coming up with this whole idea in the first place. He didn't get sued, by the way. So, of course, he wanted to take credit for it. Hmm. So, on the day that the film version was released in 1979, Weber actually had a press conference and said that he and the Lutzes had made up the entire story over a bottle of wine. He said that they did claim to have some kind of supernatural experience in the house, but it was only with his help that began to elaborate on the details of the story. He'd looked at the evidence in the Ronald DeFeo crime and had based, like, a lot of it on that. So, like, the famed green slime was actually pictures of the blood splatter in the house that Mm, kind of inspired that. The flies in the room were based on the flies from the crime scene. And he went on, like, very mildly, according to some people, to explain that he'd been approached and told a publisher would give him a very large advance if he wrote a book about the DeFeo case specifically. So he was using this, again, like, all as publicity. Gotcha. Yep. Now, the, now this is the writer and not the lawyer, This right? is the lawyer. Oh. Yeah, the lawyer wasn't involved. With, like, Jay Anson did not approach William Weber at all. And so he was pissed off because he was cut out of the deal with, like, the movie and everything. And gotcha. so he was actually behind writing a lot of the, like, there was a good housekeeping article that came out that kind of really spurred people to go visit the house while the Cromarties lived there. Mm-hmm. Was it was it like how to clean blood out of carpet, or what do you write about that in good housekeeping? <laughs> how exactly? to clean up a house after a crime was committed. He also said that he tried to get the Lutzes to go on in this whole idea for the book with him. His idea being that if he did this, he would actually split the royalties with Ronald DeFeo himself. But George Lutz would not hear of this. Like he's like, why the fuck would you give this guy money for killing his family? Because in essence, that's what he would be doing. Yeah, pretty much. By and large, yeah. So it was at that point that Lutz and his wife entirely stopped talking, talking to Weber, and that's also when they cut out, cut him out of the deal with Prentice Hall and Anson. So they just they didn't want anything to do with DeFeo, even though he was legit making them a living. So, hmm. so DeFeo also went on to corroborate Weber's account. He said he never wanted to claim insanity, um, but at that point, like his credibility was completely shot. He'd explained how all of this happened multiple occasions a biggest one is that his mother and sister had actually been involved in the killings too he went below before a parole board in 1999 and explained that he'd only killed one of his sisters dawn but she had actually been responsible for the rest of the murders oh yeah like so she killed everyone and then he killed her in her bed yes right Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. claims that i love my family very much he allegedly insisted, but the parole board did not believe him. Loved. So, loved. Was I, this no, the... I love my family very much. Oh. Love. But was that the first time he had even <laughs> said that? Like, during the whole court proceeding? Like, he never mentioned any of that until yeah. now? Well, there, I mean, I think during the actual course of the case, like, he didn't say a lot because yeah. his lawyer was speaking for him. But whenever he goes before the parole board, like, you have to wait a while to be on parole after killing six people. Uh, yeah. yeah. Also, he's probably all whacked out on county jail heroin or whatever at the time. Heck yeah. Okay. So, we go on back to the Lutz family at this point, which the kids all have different names. Like, I was under the impression that they were all... I knew that they weren't George Lutz's kids, but I thought they were all, Mm -hmm. like, full siblings, but they're not. Oh, Did you know this? I I didn't know this. I actually didn't realize that, no. I assume they were all his... I can't remember what his wife's name was. Kathy. Kathy. That mm-hmm. was it. Yeah, They're was all it. her kids, but they all have different dads. Right. Mm-hmm. I just assumed it was all from Kathy and whoever, her ex, whoever mm-hmm. that was. But no, I didn't realize that yeah. was the case. So Christopher, 
was the middle son, if I'm recalling correctly. That sounds right. Yeah. So Christopher, his last name's Quarantino. <laughs> Quarantino. Quarantino. Just, that's what it looks like. Like a Mexican hospital. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so we're just gonna call him Christopher. So Christopher, the middle son, was seven when his mother Kathy and her new husband moved into the Amityville house. Okay, and he is quoted as saying that there has been three different representations of what happened in that house and not one of them not the book not the original movie nor the remake of the movie was accurate he actually maintains the house haunting itself was not a hoax but it wasn't on the scale that the movies make it sound and that he insists that his stepfather george lutz actually brought it all on him by himself like he was super interested in the occult and he would dabble in it, and that amplified the paranormal incidents. But he also said that his stepfather is like a professional showman, and he did everything just to make a profit off of the books and movies. Mm. Like, he just felt like that his family had been exploited his whole life, and he actually left the house at 16 and never came back. Like, didn't live with his parents anymore. Right. So, he also says that when the family moved into the house, George Lutz was heard kind of chanting like he doesn't remember what he was chanting but he would go down in the basement and start chanting oh which is creepy and weird yeah he says i don't know that i'd call it black magic but it was definitely a way to call up spirits i want to believe that it was like the beginning of hooked on a feeling hooked on a feeling yeah i really want to believe that's what he was chanting. <laughs> he's just down there listening to a shitty clock radio that i saw in the, <laughs> that i saw in the movies yes the one that stopped every night. Piece of shit. <laughs> so he says that there were definitely incidents that didn't occur, like the unseen forces ripping the front door from its hinges. But he says he did have run-ins with the paranormal during the time they were in the house. He saw a presence, like, as full form as a man, but it was just like a shadow man a couple of times in the house. He said that if you want to point a finger at something that was evil in that house... The finger should be pointed at George Lutz, not anyone else. But, I mean, that's also a kid that grew up hating his stepdad. Right. Well, and so. even, even in the movies and the book and everything else, George Lutz is portrayed as this aggressor in that, too. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, maybe that was actually a, a part of his character, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, over the years before his death, George would give a few interviews... But he still really presented himself as, like, this very withdrawn figure, kind of, like, above it all. But he was definitely making a shit ton of money off of it. And he, till the end, would experience, would insist that his family had actually experienced everything in that house. But he also had problems keeping straight everything that happened. Which is stupid. You have a book you can read. Right. That's true. It's literally written down for your consumption. Like, people would just, they would take these interviews and there would be small inaccuracies across the board. And it really made it easier for everybody to kind of believe Weber that it was all a hoax. But the problem is that you've got Danny and Christopher, who are the two older children, who are saying, no, like, stuff was really happening in this house. So he had Christopher before. Danny says that they remember some of the events. They definitely remember shadowy figures. And he personally does remember being thrown up a staircase by what he feels like were malevolent spirits. Thrown up a staircase? Thrown up a staircase. Wow. Shit. Yeah. I've, I've only fallen up a staircase like one time, and I think it was the same night as the white as the wine thing. Oh. <laughs> I've fallen up a staircase totally sober before. I'm oh, not, me too. For sure. So maybe, maybe that guy just has a really bad memory like me. Maybe. That's why he can't get his story straight. 
That's probably what Maybe. it is. So Danny is actually the one that created the documentary we talked about, My Amityville Horror. And he claims that in this documentary that he was actually possessed by a spirit that I could not get rid of on my own. And But at the same time, Danny says that the disturbances at the Amityville house had nothing to do with the DeFeos. He, too, said it was George who had summoned the bad spirits with his dabbling in the occult. He said that George was vain, and he was a domineering stepfather, and he had actually terrorized his stepchildren. It's strange to me how much of an effect the dabbling in the occult had back then compared to now. When was the last time you dabbled in the occult? I'm not just saying me. You won't let us do a Ouija board in your house. Yeah, but I've got a lot of... What do, what do you have up here, Shelby? Up, up where? Up here in this joint. <laughs> up here in this house. I'm just saying, I have a lot of friends that are into, like, occult practices and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I have never heard them say that they've had any luck with it, which also makes me wonder why they continue to do it, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Maybe they just need a really old, really fancy house to do it in. Possibly, possibly. Instead of a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> Demons need space to run around. Yeah. All right. But Danny Lutz does insist that there was a force larger than George Lutz himself in the house. He says that he truly believes that there were evil demonic spirits. He knows that they exist. And in, like, min- like he just, he is the one person that, like, I watched that documentary and I was like, I could believe this. Like, you genuinely believe that this is a thing that happened to you. I watched it, too. And it, I, I was not against believing him, but at the same mm-hmm. time, he seems... He's a pretty strange guy. I don't know. He just, he strikes me as really earnest, though. Like, damaged and earnest. To an extent, but he also seemed like, well, like kind of like you described George Lutz as kind of a, a natural showman, even though yeah. he was humble about it. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it, it felt odd to me, because obviously I watched it and I didn't really, it didn't color my opinion one way or the one other, or the I other. guess. It, it kind of just sounded like another attempt to be in the spotlight, mm-hmm. almost. So, that's Amityville House. Like, there have been so many people that came out against it saying, hey, this isn't real. But then you have the kids that actually lived in the house to a certain extent that are like, well, parts of it are real. And a lot like the Warrens, like, I kind of think it's a big mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Like, George Lutz is a dickhole. Ronald DeFeo, also kind of a dickhole. Ed Warren, despite my love of him in the Conjuring movies. Polyester clad dick hole. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's no white knight there. But, like, I think that Lorraine, to a certain extent, believes what she does. You know what I mean? And they've taught a lot of people a lot about what they think about paranormal culture and opened people up to it. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, I think if you tell yourself you're a psychic long enough you're bound to get a couple of things right, and then you're like, well, look at that. I am a psychic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then, too, like, they're, they started a conversation that no one was talking about at that time. Like, they did have a way that wasn't necessarily... Granted, they were super churchy. They were super Catholic. They brought priests in, whatever. But they did bring science into a realm that it wasn't necessarily in before. And they brought all this to the public eye, too. I mean, exactly. They, so Something that was not really talked about outside of, let's say, the church. Yeah. Or, or again, people that deal in the occult anyway. Yeah. That were aware of whatever forces they thought they were dealing with. And right. they helped families to a certain extent. You know what I mean? Like, 
getting getting the conversation started and getting them paid getting them dollar dollar <laughs> bills y'all i think a lot of these stories like start out as you know truth mm-hmm. or something that they think happened like they're thinking they're seeing these things but then they exact like the warrants just exaggerate and exaggerate and try to get money out of it and that's what we're finding that's disturbing and it makes it so much of a better story when they exaggerate and make it into this thing that it it wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. like true hire professional writers to take the account yeah so think of it this way though like imagine instead of it being like the 1950s 1960s 1970s it was 2018 Mm-hmm. The wardens wouldn't be making money off of writing these books and selling it as true life. They would have a fucking destination truth style TV show where they travel around and help these families. Like we would be looking at it as reality television. It, it would be ghost hunters. Basically. It would be ghost. Well, ghost yeah. hunters are you know something a little bit Go, ghost family. Hunter, ghost hunters Catholic edition. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. And I think just that now. We watch reality TV and we're like, this isn't true. They present it, but they present it as truth. You know what I mean? Like, the Kardashians live their lives, you guys. This is how they live every day. No, they don't. And this isn't Ed Warren. Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren didn't live that way every day. But, I mean, the the fiction that they told us and they sold us. Sure. And and it's easier to not disprove something when the internet isn't a thing exactly yeah when exactly. you when you can't find a picture of your favorite reality star wearing pajama pants instead of designer clothing or whatever you know it's like hey, the kardashians wear designer pajama clothes yes i they do. i didn't say kardashians or nothing at all i don't know jack shit about reality tv no. so i can't really <laughs> weigh in on this conversation but i would appreciate somebody in more polyester on reality television <laughs> agreed agreed I did want to say that as of right now, Lorraine Warren has officially retired from active investigations. She doesn't visit uh, haunted houses. She doesn't go look into demonic infestations or possessions. She's still a consult to their like research team, but it is run by her son-in-law, Tony Spera, who actually has worked with them for over 30 years. Um, and if you go take a tour of the Occult Museum for $169 that they do take paypal for she will not be there well lorraine's like 90 something she's, yeah she's real old she's like 91 or something but like that. even in like her mid to late 80s they had her up That's... running around doing college tours and stuff with this tony Sparrow guy and i read the reviews of those and they're like this is fucking stupid like he thinks he's the shit and he's not mm. and right. she she's just like a little old lady like rambling telling stories and stuff. right so. Also, just for the sake of update, I have not seen any emails come in from Lorraine yet, so I assume she has not heard the podcast we published the last few weeks. Fuck. Dang it. But maybe she'll hear this one. Maybe this will be the one that finally just... Does just, it for. She just snaps and decides, all right, I'm going to set these fuckers straight. <laughs> we were at Amityville the whole time. Lies. <laughs> and my husband is a saint. All right. Well, guys, that is our summation of Ed and Lorraine Warren and all of their... What we thought were kind of their interesting cases. Um, if you have any others that you'd like us to cover or later on down the line, you let us know. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can get a hold of us on Instagram, Facebook, or email us at queencitycreeps at gmail.com. We'll hopefully hear from you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.